0: Well, good morning once again. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to Luke 22, Luke chapter 22, and if you don't have a Bible but you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you, and if you are looking for Luke chapter 22, that's going to be on page 882 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks. sensory memories are short-term memories that we receive from uh, our five senses. They are extremely short-term. Some scientists believe that the sensory inputs that we receive, the sensory memories that we have can often be measured in units less than a second. That's probably why you can open a brand new bag of chips and quickly find yourself at the bottom of that bag of chips because you think, just one more. maybe Maybe you don't do that, but I certainly have. Sometimes those sensory memories get attached to something significant in our lives. So I'm thinking of something like Remember Riley in the movie Inside Out, she develops these core memories, and every time she has this significant event, this core memory is is developed in her. Maybe it's a song that you haven't heard in a long time, but hearing that song immediately transports you back to some time in your life. Maybe it's high school, maybe it's your wedding, Maybe it's a breakup song. I don't know what it is. But when you hear that song, it just takes you back to that moment. Maybe you catch the scent of an aftershave, and it immediately reminds you of your grandfather. And, of course, there are tastes that can become associated with a particular memory, whether that is a good one or a bad one. Some of us have had the experience of eating a food that we really like or eating at a restaurant that's one of our favorites and then getting food poisoning. And what often happens when you've had something that you love or eaten at a restaurant that you like and you have food poisoning, you don't ever want to eat at that restaurant again. You don't, that may have been your favorite food, but your brain connects the taste of that food that you loved so much with this terrible experience of food poisoning, and so you want nothing to do with it anymore. But of course, on the flip side, there are also tastes that can transport you back in a moment to your grandmother's kitchen, right? It's fascinating to me that our senses can become associated with specific memories and that they become so closely associated with those specific memories that is that to experience that sensation is to bring that memory back a french novelist named marcel proust wrote a novel in the early 1900s called in search of lost time it bears the distinction of being perhaps the longest novel ever written, uh, I think in the Guinness Book of World Records, actually. <laughs> but there's this main character in this novel who is weary. He is sad. He is depressed. And someone offers him something called a Madeline or a Madeline, which is this little, uh, little like spongy cookie that has been soaked in tea. And the character in this book says, no sooner had the warm liquid and the crumbs with it touched my palate, a shudder ran through my whole body, and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary changes that were taking place. What he goes on to say in this novel is that he has this this taste of this little cake that's been dipped in tea, and it brings back... floods back these memories of his childhood. He remembers his aunt that had given him these cookies with her tea. He's reminded of his childhood home that he grew up in. All of a sudden he can see the streets of the little village that he was raised in. And he says that all of these things that they had been long forgotten sprang into being, town and gardens alike, all from my cup of tea. You've maybe had an experience like that. Maybe not so vivid, but you might have had an experience where a taste has triggered a memory. This phenomenon has, become, has been called a, a Proustian moment or the Proust effect. Because as I said, sometimes these sensory memories become so attached to something significant in our lives because that event is attached to a strong feeling or a strong emotion. Okay, so why am I saying all this? Okay, where where are we going, please? I'm saying this because in just a few moments, you and I are about to taste something. And When you and I taste these things, we are joining ourselves with a group of people who for two millennia now have tasted the same things. We are joining ourselves to people who are not Americans, who do not live in this century, people who have a very different worldview from ours, a very different perspective, very different experiences than ours, and yet we are joining with them in taking a taste of something that Jesus commanded us to taste. And the reason Jesus wants us to taste the reason Jesus wants you to taste these things this morning is very simple. Jesus wants you to remember. He wants that taste to trigger a memory. One of Jesus' last experiences with his disciples was a meal. This meal that he shares with his disciples is is recorded for us in the first three books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this, but I want to read from Luke's account. So if you're there, go with me, Luke 22, we're going to read verses 14 to 20 together. Verse 14, the word of God says this, when the hour came, he reclined at table. the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Christian faith is a faith that is tangible. It is a faith that is physical. That is not to say that it is not also spiritual. If, if everything that is, can, if we believe that everything that is, is is what can be tasted and touched and felt, then there's a whole dimension of existence we will completely miss. So the Bible talks about spirituality in a variety of ways, but we, the Christ, uh, as those who have embraced the Christian faith, have embraced a physical spirituality. You and I live an embodied faith that is part of the material, physical world. Ours is a faith of gardens and arcs, And deserts, and stuff called hyssop, and stone tablets, and blood, and temples. It is a faith in which God becomes human, takes on a bodily existence that includes things like riding in boats, Touching lepers, getting nailed to a cross. And before Jesus went to that cross, he gathered his disciples, the apostles, together for Passover, as any faithful Jew would have done. And I want you to just, in your mind's eye, try to insert yourself into that story. I want you to imagine that you are there in that room with Jesus and His disciples. It's an upper room. It's an an upstairs room that you would have had to climb a flight of stairs to reach. And as you enter into that room, you see that there is a table in the center of the room, a table that is low to the ground because they would have eaten this feast reclining, And as you walk over and look at that table, you notice that there are all sorts of items on that table. There are are things that you can dip your food into. You can smell the smell of bread. You can see and smell the wine that's been poured. The purpose of Passover was for the people of Israel to communally... That is, together, as a group, remind themselves of God's deliverance from their slavery in Egypt. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to say something radical. He says now, as as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me now. And we've heard that so many times, I think we miss the the radical nature of that statement for Jesus to take the Passover, something that, has been, that, that faithful Jews have observed for centuries, and say, now do this in remembrance of me. But that's exactly what he does. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus could have looked at the disciples that were gathered around the table, and he could have said, guys, never forget this. Never forget this moment that we've shared together. He could have said something else. He could have looked at the disciples who were gathered around the table and said, you are going to gather again and again and again, and you're going to do it without me. And as long as you gather without me, I want you to close your eyes and have a moment of silence for me to remember this. He could have done that. But he doesn't. He specifically connects their remembering with their bodily senses of taste and touch and smell. When you break this bread, remember my body which was broken for you. When you take a drink of this wine, remember the blood that was shed for you. And for the disciples, this was to be a Proustian moment far before Proust ever thought about writing anything. It was intended to be a sensory memory that would transport them back to the moment that they had shared together in this upper room before Christ went to the cross. Imagine the first time they did this after Jesus has left them. Imagine them gathering together once again and breaking bread and passing cups around the table and the significance that, would, that they would have felt in that. But Jesus did not intend for this sensory memory to be exclusively for the disciples who sat around that table with him that evening. The Apostle Paul makes it clear In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we all, all followers of Jesus across all cultures and across all times and local churches across history and throughout the globe, to eat and drink, taste, and remember. Jesus wants us. Jesus commanded us. Not to just simply have a moment of silence, not to have a personal thing for ourselves, but together to eat and drink, to taste and remember. So we ought to ask the question, what specifically does Jesus want us to taste and remember? Remember? And I want to answer that question very simply in two ways. We're going to spend the the majority of our time in the first answer. What does Jesus specifically want us to remember when we taste? First of all, we taste to remember what has been done. We taste to remember what has been done. Jesus institutes The regular and continual sharing of the Lord's Supper because you and I are in constant need of a taste that takes us back. You and I are in constant need of a taste that takes us back. Back to what Jesus has done. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this. Do what? Eat it. Taste it in remembrance of me. You and I are supposed to taste the bread. That's something that we do in the body. And in tasting, we are to remember the the glorious truth that God became flesh like us, that God became human with everything that entails, including a bodily existence. We are supposed to taste this bread and remember that Jesus himself told us that he was the bread of life. And then anyone who has a taste of this bread will never hunger again. The physical hunger that we feel as breakfast or lunch or dinner approaches is a mirror of the spiritual hunger within each one of us that can only be satisfied in Christ. And we can try to fill that hunger and satiate ourselves and fill that void with all sorts of things and we have imagined every alternative and nothing satisfies. And yet Jesus stands before us and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever has me will never hunger again. When we take this broken bread... We remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. We remember that God enters into the physical, material world that He has created, and He does not simply enter into this physical, material world, take on a body so that He can just get a feel for what it's like to be us, but so that He specifically can have that body broken. That's why He comes. And of course, the same is true of the cup. Our text says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. When Jesus was talking about, to his disciples about the importance of staying close to him, the importance of abiding in him, the importance of remaining with them, the illustration that he gives them is the illustration of a vine. And Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me as I abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. Jesus also tells us that whoever believes in him will never thirst again. When we think about this imagery of the cup, the cup is used in the Old Testament in numerous places to symbolize God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath gets poured out. We see that when Christ goes to the cross, he drinks the full. God's wrath. In fact, when he's praying the night before he goes to the cross, he says, if "It be your will, let this cup pass from me." So when we take the cup in our hands, when we raise it to our lips, when we taste that, we are to remember that Jesus drank down the full cup of God's wrath so that you and I could drink the full cup. His grace, that's what we're to be reminded of. And we are called back to the table to taste again and again and again because Jesus knows that you and I are so quick to wander away from the table, aren't we? No sooner have we come to the table than that we have started wandering away from it. Which is why he often describes us as lost sheep. <laughs> needing to be corralled again. We are so quick to wander from the table. We are so quick to go our own way. We are so quick to forget who we are. We are so quick to forget who Jesus is, who we are in him, and what he is. Has done, And so when we take a taste of the bread and the cup, that taste is supposed to shock us back. It's supposed to spark a memory in us. It's supposed to remind us of who we are, remind us of who Christ is, remind us of what he has done. It is supposed to be a taste that takes us back and centers us again. The work of Christ who he is and what he's done. If I could illustrate it in a couple of ways. Most of us have probably seen the movie Ratatouille, right? Bet some of us, young kids, you've seen it 47 times. But there's this character in Ratatouille named Anton Ego. And Anton Ego is this Brutal critic. He eviscerates chefs and restaurants and recipes in his column, and anyone that receives a visit from him at their restaurant is always worried the next day that that their restaurant is going going to drop in people's eyes because this is the kind of guy that can make you or break you. There's this scene at the end of the movie where Ego is finally going to be visiting Gusteau's restaurant, And you can see him enter the restaurant with a pad of paper in his hand and his pen. He is ready to criticize. He sits down at his table and he's served a dish. And as they take the top off of it, you can see him sneer at it. It's just ratatouille. It's a conventional dish. that's made all over France by all sorts of home cooks. And he clicks his pen, ready to write. Then he takes a taste, and when he takes that taste, when he puts that first forkful in his mouth, you can see him start to flash back, and as he flashbacks, he goes all the way back to his childhood when he has fallen off of his bike and wrecked it. He's got skinned up knees, and his mother has seated him at her table and has made him ratatouille to comfort him to eat for his lunch. the pen falls from his hand. And he begins to simply enjoy the food. It's a taste that takes him back. It changes him. It changes how he sees himself as a critic, why he fell in love with food in the first place. It softens him. Another film, which probably... Fewer of us have seen. It's called Pig. (laughs) Has anyone seen Pig? Okay, had one person in the first service. Zero people. uh, Zero people in the second service. I will summarize it briefly. If you're planning on watching this, many spoilers, plug your ears. (laughs) Pig is about a man by the name of Rob who is like a celebrity hotshot chef in the city of Portland his wife dies and in the grief of losing his wife he shutters his restaurant he becomes a hermit out in the wilderness of Oregon he grows his beard out it looks like it looks like a mountain man and his only companion out there is a pig a truffle pig and the way rob supports himself is by using this truffle pig to find truffles in the in the forest and he sells them to this young man named Amir, who then sells these truffles to high-end restaurants, and that's how he makes it. But one day, a group of unknown people come to his cabin, beat him up, and take his pig. And Rob is distraught about this pig, not simply because of the pig, but because of all the grief that's connected to it in his life. And he goes on this hunt where he will stop at nothing throughout this movie to get this pig back. Subjecting himself to all sorts of things. Compressing a lot, but it turns out that Amir, the guy he sells these truffles to, his father is actually in the same business, and he's estranged from his father. His father is actually the one who's arranged to have this pig stolen. Refuses to give the pig back, and so everything is everything is, is, is culminating towards this showdown at the end. Rob sneaks into this man's house. So we think we're going to have a fight or some kind of confrontation. But it's not a fight. What he does is he cooks this man a meal. And he serves the man this meal despite his protests. And as this man, who is bitter, he's become estranged from his son, he too has lost his wife, he's become ruthless and evil. As he sits down at the table, he begins to eat, and he realizes that Rob has cooked him a meal that he and his wife, when they had been together, had eaten in his restaurant. And as he puts puts that first forkful of food in his mouth, and he swishes the wine around in his cup, You can see on his face the realization of what's happening. Then a sob escapes him. That taste, that moment, jolts him back to a time before he was bitter. That taste jolts him back to a time before he became ruthless, before he had pushed away the people closest to him, a time before he had become swallowed up in his own grief. And I give you these two examples because I believe they illustrate the point well for us. Two people who have a taste takes them back and helps them remember something that they had forgotten. The taste, the bread, the taste of the cup are intended to do the same for us. Jesus wants for us, he wants for our senses to be engaged. He does not simply want us to have a moment of silence, he wants that taste to jolt us back because he knows that we wander from the table so quickly. You and I are so quick to forget the depths of our sinfulness. but We are also so quick to forget the lengths to which God has gone to rescue us. when we forget the work of Christ, we become discouraged. We become critical. We become bitter. We become closed off. We become estranged to ourselves, to the people around us, and to the Savior who has given His life for us. And so Jesus wants you to taste and remember what he's done for you. He wants you to taste and remember who you are. He wants you to taste and remember so that we let go of our bitterness, so that we bring him into our grief. Friends, it's so easy for us to just go through the motions when we share the Lord's Supper together to act as if we are contractually obligated as a church because Jesus put it in writing in the New Testament that we've got to share the Lord's Supper together uh, at least once a month, get in 12 times a year to make sure we're doing it often enough. And I don't believe that we ought do this at our church. We try to take it seriously, but oftentimes it's just this thing that gets tacked on to the edge. We've got to make sure that we've got five minutes for it that can go somewhere and we totally miss the point that Jesus wants us to see it, and He wants us to taste it, and He wants us to savor it, because there is stuff that you've got to remember, because we are so prone to wander from the table. Jesus wants you to taste, and for that taste to be a shock to your system to shock you out of your complacency and the mundanity of day in and day out life and your own struggles and everything else that comprises our lives. He wants us to shock us out of that and remind us once again who He is and who we are. We're going to do that in just a moment, and I'll give some instructions for it. But I'll give you a little aside. When I when I, think it, when I talk about these tastes, I think that these tiny little things don't do it justice. <laughs> they just don't. And I know that's the way lots of us have been doing it for many years, and there's just a part of me that's like, I don't know who decided that we would do it this way, but I don't like it. Sorry, I came back from sabbatical, and I'm more honest. <laughs> We're talking about ways to try to figure out to do it a little differently than this, where you have more of a taste. We've left these at everyone's seat. I want to tell you who can participate in this. The Bible tells us that that communion, the Lord's Supper, is something that is meant for Christians, for people who have been saved, people who have been born again, those who are followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. Very glad you're here. We want you to be here. If you don't understand what what the gospel is, you don't understand what it means to be saved, then we would say, wait for this while we share it together because there's something else that we want you to do. We want you to ponder the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that The second person of the Trinity, God Himself, took on full humanity, including flesh, so that He could live and walk among us, living a perfect life, and then have His body broken for our sins. You, where you are sitting right now, can receive what Jesus has done if you will repent of your sins, let go of your bitterness, and come in faith to Jesus. The Bible tells us that no one who comes to him is ever turned away. And what what we would like you to use this time to do is to just, in silent prayer before God, consider the state of your soul before him. And there doesn't have to be lightning or fireworks or anything. You can humbly come to Jesus in faith right where you're sitting.